Joel. Patrick. <laughs> happy, happy Invisible Path, man. Happy Invisible Path, yeah. We're about to cross over here into the new year, so... Yeah. Most excellent. We've we're, done it. We were actually time traveling and we are uh, deep into the new year. We are 20 days into the new year right it's now. True. It's true. It's <laughs> true. Yeah. We'll have to, we'll have to think of it that way. Um, well, we need, we need to let people know how ignorant we are and how, when they're listening to this, we're 20 days behind. So if any major things have happened in the world and we are so ignorant to not even mention them, now you know why. We, we've missed them in our time traveling ways yes <laughs> <laughs> all right before we started you were sipping on a cup of chaga and i said joel is that the same piece of chaga you said yeah same darn chunk yeah um it's you know we'd we'd talked before you'd asked about like what's the utility over time and i, I suspect that you'd probably get you know the lion's share right of the extract on the on that first you know few sessions um but it, it continues to give up all sorts of good stuff over time but what i wanted to talk about with chaga is it's so darn popular and there's extracts everywhere supplements you can get everywhere yeah and if you get a if you get a a chaga supplement. This is just another plug for your for your whole <laughs> product, right? Your whole chaga product. Um, if you just get a supplement and it's chaga or it's got chaga in it, and your supplement is a light brown color, colored powder, yeah, um, there's no darn chaga in there. There's some, <laughs> you know, there's some, there's some mycelium, mycelium you know, some yeah. like fungal tissue that that they colonize on some rice bran um but chaga is not the same as that live organism there's i mean there are some okay there are some mushrooms where for example cordyceps you know this thing in the wild grows on you know buried caterpillar larva something like that and the 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 active ingredients that you can get from an extract versus what you get in the wild, you can get comparable things there for sure. But there's just no way in hell you're getting anything close when it comes to chaga. Like some, I, I, I'm not going to be one of those people that's just like absolute about it. Like everything is nuanced and you could probably get some lion's mane extracts that are, that are going to give you, you know, similar, um, compounds as the whole mushroom or the wild mushroom you know maybe it's not quite as good but it's you're in the same ballpark but it is just you're not even getting the same things not even close for chaga so mm. if you're going to get chaga just get the get the whole thing get uh get, get, the, get the chunks harvested from trees if you're just getting you know some sad tissue that was grown in a lab on rice bran it's just not happening. You're not getting it. You haven't, you haven't yet made contact with this incredible being. Yeah. So do it. Yeah. That's interesting. Cause Chaga, it changes so much with the, with the cold that it's exposed to, right? Like the, the Attempt, deeper, yeah. the deeper into the Arctic, your chart, your Chaga comes from. Yes. 100%. The, yeah. yeah. I, and the thing is, is I, I say that with such conviction. I don't know. I mean, maybe there's, maybe yeah. there isn't good research on that. But when you look at um, 
back to cordyceps, the caterpillar mushroom, what's super interesting about that is that in the wild where it's traditionally used up in the high altitudes, um, I believe it's in Tibet or Nepal, you know, some, right, you know, ish, um, mm-hmm. in, in that area, right. It's, it's high altitude, it's cold as hell and it's low and a low oxygen environment. And, um, that is where you're going to get the best types of, um, you know, goodies, nutraceutical goodies out of that stuff. It is going to be at its most potent when it is in that habitat. And, uh, there's a company that's based in Nevada and they have figured this out and they have a patent on growing it at, in a low oxygen environment. And that Mm. like doubles the active ingredients in it. So it just really ramps up the potency. Mm. And I suspect that the same thing is true with chaga where you want it to be in the most extreme uh, range of its environment. So sure you could get some stuff from Minnesota, but why wouldn't you get it from Siberia where it's cold as hell? Like <laughs> Minnesota's cold as hell, but Siberia is way colder and the tigers. So yeah, all that stuff. Spe- speaking of cold, Joel, I can literally see your breath right now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there's snow. There's going to be more snow soon. Um, <laughs> there's going to be more snow soon. It's awesome. This will keep me <laughs> wide awake for this. Um, and uh, we, yeah, we've had a, a ton of snow and I spent a little time this morning uh, helping to clear out my elderly neighbor's driveway and mailbox. Heck yeah. Do, do those things for those people that need help. Heck yeah, uh, for sure. It'll make you feel good. I, um, real quick to, to round off our Chaga discussion last, last time, you mentioned how um, chaga could be a really good ember. And that, that got me thinking if it was used traditionally as an incense at all, and it is used traditionally as an incense. And I burned a little chaga just to see what that experience is like and is a remarkable ember. Um, but it's also a really sweet incense. Um, so interesting interesting experience on the, on the incense front too. All good That's stuff awesome. with chaga. Did you use that? Was that something that was spent or was that just fresh? No, it was my, it was my old chunk. Okay. Nice. Oh, that's great. I mean, you still yeah. get, you still get some good, um, aromatic entertainment. Yeah. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah, for sure. All right. So we're, we're still in the midst of quite a mushroom tail. We're finishing it. We're starting it now. Now we're starting. Yeah. We've done the background. <laughs> finishing it yeah. and starting it. Yeah. So yeah so this tale starts i guess with um you know leaving leaving school leaving washington state leaving the northwest where it's so darn wet all the time um and perfect mushroom habitat and moving to the southwest down to uh, flagstaff arizona and and uh you know we had to get away had to get away and get some sun and so that was crucial but at the same time I had spent um, like six years just hunting mushrooms in the Northwest and really enjoyed that and, and had identified, you know, like hunted and identified just hundreds of different species, learned all the different genuses, had all this Latin in my head and was highly suspicious that I wasn't going to find anything in Arizona because the trees, I mean, just the size of the trees, like the trees down here, are hardly even trees compared to the Northwest. Yeah. Um, I mean, I remember 
being out hiking around with a bunch of people and we all you know went arm to arm like reaching around with our wingspan around a giant tree and it was like 12 of us to get around this old growth tree linking hand to hand um and you just don't see that very much down in arizona so i was highly suspicious that like okay this phase of um you know, this hobby of my life, whatever, this thing I'm doing with mushrooms, whatever, it's gone. I'm not really going to find much. So, um, so I'd hunted around a little bit in the lower elevations in town and the Ponderosa Pines, and there, I hadn't found a whole lot yet. I didn't know yet that um, you had some good edibles growing down there, actually. I hadn't found those yet. Um, so, so I ended up going, uh, you know, going up to higher elevations, up into the Aspens, hoping to find something there. I, I remember in, I remember having this feeling um, in Washington, I was at this, uh, I was out on the coast um, and I happened to be, it was this field trip and the field trip was at this church camp and they had uh, this wooden cross out in, out in the forest, pretty close to the, to the coastline. And at the base of it was just a perfect specimen of Amanita muscaria, you know, the, the fairy tale mushroom red with the white dots on the cap. And, you know, as a, as a kid in college, that just like, it just blew my mind. It was like, oh my God, this is incredible. And I just wondered, was I ever going to find anything that would deliver me that kind of dopamine hit and be that like <laughs> that magical of a thing, right? Would I ever yeah. find anything like that again? Because it just seemed just like rife with symbolism and uh, just pregnant with meaning. And it was just so darn cool. Um, so, so I had gone up um, on uh, the mountain just outside of Flagstaff, uh, you know, a couple times and I'd gotten to, gotten familiar with some of the trails up there. And I remember one time, the time that I found uh, this mushroom for the first time, I parked um, in this area where you're, you're really not supposed to park. And then there's a trail there. But for some reason, I just didn't go to where uh, the trail was. Instead, I, I don't know why I did it. I just walked to the, across the street to the other side where there was no trail. And to this day, I don't really know why I did that. Hmm. Um, and it didn't take very long. I was looking around there and just didn't find anything. And it didn't take very long before I found this, this new mushroom. And, and I was just flabbergasted. Like as soon as I saw this thing and it's before I even picked it, I knew there was something special about it. Just a tiny, tiny little mushroom, maybe like, less than an inch diameter for the cap, tiny little yellow cap. And it looked exactly like all of the other uh, psilocybin mushrooms that I had seen in the Northwest, except it was yellow, right? The ones in the Northwest that I was used to, um, Psilocybe stuncii, um, uh, science, Psilocybe cyanescens, things like that, um, you have this you know, nice brown kind of caramel colored cap. And this looked exactly the same, but it was this cheerful yellow cap. Mm. And I was like, holy crap, there's one of them. 
but <laughs> but there's only one of them and and uh and this is not about like i i understood immediately like okay this could be this could be ridiculously special and so i'm looking around immediately and then i did find a second one and it was under my boot <laughs> so it's <laughs> like oh tragic tragic under my boot tiny little thing and and i remember i mean this is you know i had a film camera and i just remember just emptying the whole roll on these two specimens just trying to capture as much as i could while it was fresh before it dehydrated at all um and and then you know grabbed a spore print off of that and was just totally blown away by this by this find um and but then what can you do this is not enough to do anything with and you don't back then i mean the internet was just not what it is today right this was sure. in, um, this was in 2001 the summer of 2001 mm-hmm. mid-august and and i could tell it was uh, just by how it had responded um bruising blue i could tell this was a you know fairly you know, potent uh, species as well. That, that was pretty interesting. And in the Northwest, everything you find generally is associated with human disturbance. You've got wood chips, you've got lawns, um, you have, you know, pasture and people taking care of animals. And this was just an undisturbed aspen forest. Um, There's some evidence that there were some bears around and, uh, and some, I guess, you know, decay of wood and bears might be scratching at that. So you have some bear disturbance, but no human, no human mm-hmm. disturbance. Um, and so then, then I went on essentially a journey to try to get more of these specimens so that I could figure out what this was, figure out if this was in fact a new species or not, and try to describe it properly. Because you can't do much with one mature specimen and then one immature specimen that you stepped on. So, <laughs> so I tried like crazy to, um, to cultivate the thing and did have good success in growing out the tissue on grain and then on wood chips. Um, but then I was trying to be greedy. I was trying to get it to fruit and impatient. I was trying to get this thing to fruit indoors and I knew from you know prior experience and prior reading that you know this was probably a fool's errand, and it made a lot more sense to just grow out as much tissue as I could and and give it back to the mountain. Mm. Um, and so that's what I did. So when you do that, this is a patient game, right? This is something where you're going to put something in the ground, and then you're going to come back nine months later. Yeah. You know, this is uh, this is not an expedient type of thing. Um, and in the meantime, I went to the Telluride Mushroom Festival and um, I caught uh, Paul Stamets after a talk he'd given and showed him some slides, uh, so, you know, some images of this, this mushroom. And he's like, yeah, that's, that's probably a new species. And then, then he says to me, don't eat it. It's like, dude, I don't, he must be, <laughs> He must be so used to dealing with um, just total nutters who just only care about, you know, getting high or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. 
He said, don't eat it. I was like, Paul, I'm not going to eat the thing, man. <laughs> like, we're on the same, we're on the same wavelength here. And so he, he um, connected me uh, with Dr. Gaston Guzman, who is uh, or was the world authority in the genus Psilocybe. And that's where the lion's share, um, you know, 90, 95%, whatever, of the uh, psilocybin species uh, reside. There are some other genuses, um, Gymnopilus, maybe Mycena, a few, you know, a few others, Penelis, that, that have some active species, but generally you don't want to mess with those things. So he, Gaston Guzman, he was, he was the world authority in this genus, and he had authored um, I don't know how many species, over 100 easily, I, I would imagine. Um, so, so then I'm, I'm working on a few things at once. I'm working on getting more specimens, um, you know, collecting more out of the wild, trying to cultivate something, and then trying to get some samples down to him as well. Um, and, you know, it's really... <laughs> You don't just want to mail shrooms down to Mexico. <laughs> Doesn't matter if it's for research. You just don't want to do that. Yeah. Um, you know, it just doesn't work out well. So anyway, so I realized after not, uh, you know, after, after a little bit of headache, I realized, well, you, you've got to, you know, obviously you have to do this through the proper channels. Um, and, and so you need to, you know, you need to find a mycologist who's at a university who can send stuff down through their herbarium, uh, who can you know, send a sample down from one university to another. Um, and, and so I, I needed, I needed a, a professor and I had, I had gone to a talk um, when I was in Seattle uh, with this, uh, this professor presenting um, Dennis Desjardins and he, um, where is he at? I think it's in San Francisco or maybe San Diego. Uh, a university in one of those places. It's been so long, I forget. But he um, has been studying for a long time uh, different mushroom species that grow on islands. And so he would hunt mushrooms um, on Ho in Hawaii and uh, Bali and all sorts of great tropical places. Um, and, and what he finds is that when you have things living on an island, they're going to evolve off in their own way over time. And so you're going yeah. to find just a ton of, of unique species. And, you know, and that's when I really realized when I thought back to that talk that I that had gone to years ago, that what I was dealing with was an Island because this mountain, you know, covered in aspens and, and fir trees and, and high elevation pine trees and stuff like that. This is an Island surrounded by a desert. And so things are going to evolve up there. Uh, and in fact, on this, this mountain, there's 40 species of plants that are endemic to there. They don't grow anywhere else. So, wow. so it only makes sense that you'd find uh, some mushroom species as well that, uh, that only grow there and that are just new to science. Um, and so that's who I reached out to. And he helped me get samples down to uh, Gaston Guzman. Um, and it's, you know, that was one of the, Gosh, it was published, I think, in 2010. I think he passed away in 2016 or so. So it was one of the later species that he had uh, he'd authored before uh, before passing away. Um, I'll just keep rambling. 
<laughs> so, um, what was like when it gets published? Yeah. What is the what is the description that is offered around around this that is like identifying and setting it apart? <clears throat> yeah. So there's uh, so now now a lot of the work I think is of uh, you know delineating and. and dividing different species up is done through genetics. Um, but back then, and probably to a fair degree today, it's done, it's, it's done with both macroscopic features, you know, what does this thing look like in your hand, but then also yeah. um, microscopic features as well. And so with the genus psilocybe, they're, the gills, you know, under the cap of a mushroom, the gills are the structures that produce the spores um, that's going to help this organism reproduce. And so you have these um, specialized cells uh, that the basidia and they, they have the, the spores, they produce the spores, but then in between and intermixed with these cells that are making the spores are these other sterile cells. And they're, some of these can be longer um, in some species. It seems like they're there structurally to sort of keep the gills from coming in contact with each other. So there's enough space for the, mm. the spores to drop down out of the gills and get out into the, the air stream. But um, yeah, for whatever reason, for the genus psilocybe, it seems like they're using these, the size and the shape uh, and the you know number of these sterile cells on the gills as a real marker to distinguish between species and why that is I don't know I'm just mm -hmm. I'm an amateur right um, but this is what they do and um, and so it's a fair you know fairly boring type of thing but it, but it took it took a while it took a few years for me to figure this out where I could get where I could grow enough specimens and hunt other wild specimens. Um, to get a sample together to send off um, for research. And I remember, um, you know, burying, I would grow, you know, back then I would grow these blocks of, um, you know, colonized grain and wood chips out in bags. And then you empty the bag out and just take this big block, like the size, the size of a shoebox or something, and just bury that on the ground. And I would just do that up, up in the aspen forest. And I remember coming back um, the first year when I had success with this method, uh, I walked up to the site and there were like dozens of mushrooms there, just like an ungodly amount of them. And my first instinct was, this isn't it. It looked so different because it had so much nutrition compared to the wild ones. I was like, this mm -hmm. isn't it. I was such a pessimist at first. I picked it up with like with just like such pessimism. It's like, what is this? And then it was like, oh my God, this is it. And there's too many of them. What do you do with all this nonsense, <laughs> right? Um, and, but it's, uh, it's an interesting thing. I mean, you know, kids will, whatever, grow these things in their dorm room and jars and aquariums. But there's something so much more interesting about, about forming this long-term relationship with this organism and trying to coax it out and, it's rare. I mean, I've only found it up there wild growing in two locations ever. And I can't, and I've only found it up there really a few times wild. I mean, it's so darn rare. It's just unreal. Um, 
but uh, it ha- it has probably escaped into Colorado. Um, so that was good because I did recognize, you know, back to that island theory, I realized, okay, it needs to go to Colorado where the Aspens are. Um, yeah. So, so you know that that was accomplished years ago where it was like okay some bag some a bunch of spawn was buried up there in the aspens and everything fruited out and was just allowed to spore out and nothing was ever harvested um so that was a good thing to to keep those genetics around um but but i don't know i'm not you know people will hit me up um Every, every monsoon season, I'll get at least one person reaching out. Someone will track me down <laughs> because you can't, <clears throat> because I sort of decided a while ago, it's like, well, why there's just, there's enough psilocybin in the world, right? There's enough things in the world where you can just go online and sure you can buy the spores, you can buy the kit and all that, but maybe there should be some things out there that you can't just get off Amazon. Like maybe, maybe there should be some species that if you want to, um, you know, get to know them, you've got to go there and, and figure it out. Yeah. Right. And generally I can't help people because I don't cultivate this stuff anymore. And it's hard as hell to find the wild. Um, <laughs> it's there, but it's really yeah. quite, quite rare. Um, yeah. and so it takes some work. And so it's really only for the nerds. It is not for people who are you know, who are looking to trip or whatever. It's really not for them almost. It's for only the mushroom nerds because it grows. It's so rare and it grows in such small quantities um, that it, that's a good thing. It keeps, it keeps uh, less patient people away. I think, <laughs> I think in general, that's a good thing to do to keep less patient people away. Um, so, so yeah, that's the story of that. And it's, it's a strange thing because sometimes I don't know if you ever had this Patrick where you go back and you look back at your life and you're like, well, shoot, maybe I should have done this instead of that. Like, have I done, have I done life right? You know? (laughs) And sometimes I'll think, you know, well, damn, you know, should we have moved to Flagstaff? And then I'll just think, well, what is up with that impossible thing that happened? Yeah. We found this like ultra rare mushroom. And so it's a strange thing where it's like only the lucky are prepared and you have to sort of, you know, acknowledge those cosmic giggles from the universe. That's like, yeah, you're on the right track. Here's this, you know, here's this, for sure, uh, this sign that, that you're, you did what you needed to do. You moved to where you needed to go. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all of the, all the required knowledge to make that possible, right. It is, it is, all the required life experience to make that possible. It's all, yeah. And there were other, um, up at the, the local college here, there was a, a mycologist um, that taught at the school for a number of years and uh, wrote a book about mushrooms in the area as well. And so he surely taught some students and they had people out hunting and no one ever found this thing. So yeah, that was wild. Um, so yeah, it really is that like you have, the lucky are prepared. And like, I, I've been up there with other people that are experts in other genuses and watch them find things where they're like, Oh, that's probably a new species. Let's collect that. Mm. Oh, I didn't know that. I stepped over those things for years. <laughs> no idea. Yeah. Cause I don't know enough about that genus. And frankly, I don't care. Right. right. I don't, I don't right. care about that genus. Right. But 
for whatever reason, I'm drawn to these magic ones. And um, uh, even though it's really not a pastime I like to engage in, but um, with respect to, you know, ingesting them, but yeah, you need to have a lot of experience and a lot of luck, I think for, but when you do that, I don't know, it's interesting when you have these, these, you know, skill sets or whatever, and then you take them somewhere else where you wouldn't expect them to apply. And sometimes it just works out. For sure. It is. That is a really amazing thing. And I do think your description of that being like, an indicator from the universe that, that you're on the right path is pretty, pretty apt. Oh, I w- a, a couple more things. Yeah. Sorry. Um, so the, the mountain here is, uh, it's, you know, it's a sacred mountain for the, the first peoples that live here for the Navajo and the Hopi. And they have uh, spirits that live on the mountain and, they help with um, you know, bringing the rains and, and supporting crop growth and things like that. These are the Kachinas that live on the peaks. And they come back, there's this, there's this dance and this ritual to send the Kachinas back to the mountain. And that happens right around the monsoon season in the mm-hmm. summer where you get these summer rains, which I think is interesting. And, and anytime, you know, I just think it's interesting. It, if you have an area that is sacred to native people and they have a belief system where there's supernatural spirits that inhabit that area, you should look for some sacred plants there. <laughs> like you might find something. And, and I said before, they don't have a, you know, that's not part of their you know, current day or historic um, practices, but I just think it's an interesting overlap. Yeah. Um, and, and the, yeah. For for the nerds, I should probably like mention the name of the mushroom and all the species and all that too. Um, and I I did not name it. So the researcher Gaston Guzman he is used to, he lives in Mexico. He's used to the Mexican species and the cultural integration of the shamanic practices down there with these different species. And so he was you know very you know he. I don't know if he was looking for something that wasn't there. I mean, he is looking for something that wasn't there, but basically he named the thing after one of the tribes or he named it after the Hopi um, because that's just an imprint for him where he, he thinks, yes, of course, these tribes must have used this maybe in the distant past or something. But um, yeah, so it's Psilocybe Hopii, H-O-P-I-I. Um, and you can Google it and find a scant collection of pictures and <laughs> no spores for sale at this time as far as i'm aware um but it yeah it's an interesting thing the the cultural uses out there and how when i didn't even realize he was naming it after the hopi and then when i saw it, the paper published i was like well all right there it is i wish you would have done something <laughs> different but um because it's not part of their uh, it's not part of their scene and I'm sure they wouldn't really want to be saddled with that, but I suppose it's at least a recognition of the geography and of a of an area that is recognized as sacred to to some of the tribes around here. Yeah, yeah. The, I mean, cross paths with it, right? Like create created some type of of energetic connection, maybe. And now I actually energetic connection is an interesting thing, right? Because as you mentioned, 
you like had no idea why you went across the street. You, you really didn't know why you're in this spot. And then all of a sudden there it is. Yeah. When you, when you, or if you were going to, let's say you just wanted to tell someone, teach someone how to go into a forest and find mushrooms, right? Not any specific type of mushroom, but you just wanted to give someone the experience of walking into a forest and having the highest likelihood possible to stumble across some type of fruiting body mushroom. What would, what would your advice be for that path? Luck? Well, it's, it's good to have a guide, right? It's good to have a yeah, guide. Sure. You know, um, one, thing I'll, one thing I'll say about going across the street to the, to the opposite side of where the trail was is I didn't wander at all. I made a I made a beeline to that area for whatever reason. I did right. not zigzag. I made a straight line to that area. I don't know why. It was yeah. weird as hell. It was uncanny. Um, but your brain, when you're looking for things, your brain is a pattern matching engine in some yep. way. And the more you look and the more you find the better your brain gets at seeing these things. Absolutely. And so you can go out in the woods and, and never having never really hunted for wild mushrooms and go out with someone who's experienced and they're going to find 10 times as many things as you're going to see probably, at least to begin with, because your brain is not, is not geared up yet. It hasn't been trained to recognize those patterns. Yeah. Um, especially with things like morels, which are these sort of, you know, honeycomb looking uh, mushrooms. They don't really look like a typical mushroom and they can blend in so well with the surroundings and with the forest floor and people that are really experienced with those, they can see them everywhere. They can go out with someone who's never hunted them before. And that other person that's never found them before, they'll just step over stuff and they won't even <laughs> see it for a long time. So but, but you you know weather right mushrooms like rain so yeah you've got to wait for a good soaking um it's a very short season in the in the southwest here um it's it's much more like i would imagine the mushroom season in mexico where it's all driven by the summer monsoons and and that type of weather as opposed to um in you know the midwest east coast you get a lot of mushrooms in the spring and in the fall and then it seems like in the northwest is primarily in the fall um west coast california that's more winter really uh from what i from what i understand so you've got to know you've got to recognize where you are and there's so many resources now that it's ridiculous um but you know it took years it took years of hunting and I'm really kind of a terrible mushroom hunter. I'm not good at it. <laughs> like you would expect I'd be better. I'm not that good at it. Um, and, uh, but yeah, it takes years. It takes years to just recognize those patterns and learn these things. And then you stand a chance of finding something new like that. And, and it shows that there's still new things to be discovered out there. And so people yeah. should look at the world with uh with that type of frame, you know, you can have an adventure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is really fun. There, there is so much prep work 
required for that adventure, right? Like if I, I could have been in that exact same spot and even yeah. if I got lucky enough to see a mushroom, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have ever given it 30 seconds of thought, right? I would have been like, ah, the mushroom, that's neat. And then I would have been off somewhere else. So the, there is something, I mean, if you're, if you're actually, if you're actually looking to replicate what you've done here, the, the backend work, right? The two episodes of backend work really is essential to making that a possibility. It's true. And, you know, but you could probably do something better with your life though than that. I mean, um, you've managed, like, I would imagine I your, your mind, <laughs> you don't have any, look, you sleep on, you can sleep on the floor and you're not addicted to any streaming services. So that's an accomplishment, <laughs> right? Like, like, and that took, and that took work. That took years of work. Uh. So if you're going to dedicate yourself, if you're going to dedicate yourself to something, um, you know, maybe esoteric and, and, uh, and new, or you're on some path to discover something, you know, choose wisely. So you don't do something stupid, like just find a new mushroom. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. I think the adventure description you gave is so perfect. And I do, I do think, uh, there is a, there is a culture that still exists in America because we are so new, right? Like we are four generations, essentially max, maybe, maybe more than that. We're not that many. We're, we're just so such a short and new country with this, with this ridiculous pioneer quality that had to be in our ancestors for us to get here, right? Like somebody yeah. had to be like, hey, we're going to leave the known world and we're going to go to this new place on maybe a promise, maybe just an idea to get away from what, what we already know exists. And I think that these are this opportunity for adventure, this opportunity for pioneering, however it happens in your life, I think there is something uniquely fulfilling about the American spirit um, that comes from these little, as you described it, adventure, and I would describe it as as pioneering something something new to the world. So I, I can't I can't think of anything more fun than than bringing something new to the world. And, and I think that is, that is what you have done here. Uh, it doesn't get better for me. It's, it's a fun thing. It's a fun little ego stroke, right? It's like, well, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> um, but <laughs> I remember, uh, yeah. oh gosh, years ago, years ago, how, how old was, I'm trying to remember when, what grade this was, but, my younger son, you know, he knew that I discovered he was, he was so young. He didn't, he didn't, you know, he's not going to know anything about the magical aspects of the mushroom. He was so young back then, but he told this teacher, he's like, yeah, my dad discovered a new species of mushroom. And then the teacher like pulled up a paper and told the class about it, which is hilarious because <laughs> she had no idea. So funny. So funny. So because yes, it's all out there. It's all in the record now. Um, but yeah, the Amer the pioneering spirit um, of America. I mean, you can see that continuing now. I mean, the culture washed. It, it came over across the Atlantic to the East Coast, and then it had to get through an even tighter filter of getting over to the West, getting over to California. Sure. Absolutely. Like, like getting across the ocean uh, onto the East Coast, that's a hell of a filter. 
but then to enough. filter <laughs> to filter the people even more by yeah. leaving every by leaving the east coast behind and going out west um, and then you look at the innovation coming out of california you look at all the discoveries and and that pioneering spirit applied to you know high technology and all that um, it is incredible and it's something that I've been appreciating a lot recently as I read um, the uh, complete life and tales of Scrooge McDuck, something like that. <laughs> we'll have to talk about it later. I think it's a stunning piece. Um, it really is a stunning thing, the messaging in that. And, and life is so darn easy now. You know, we've talked about that a lot on the invisible path. You can have everything sort of handed to you. You can sort of coast through. Um, but why not take advantage of all that abundance and all that comfort to, um, to find something new or create something new, right? To, to re-engage in that pioneering spirit in the new modern age. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean find those things those those are the most i i really believe that those are the most fulfilling things that we can interact with in our time so heck yeah more than an ego more than an ego stroke joel a, a rad exhibition of pine american pioneerism well it's we talked about that too it's like using the ego for something good like you most people need that drive anyways and so okay cool yeah do so, use it to your advantage right like sure we're all i don't know we're all flawed we're all human we all have our needs and so figure out a way to get those fulfilled while doing cool things i i agree what is the what, if any, is the way that your life experience has changed the most from this discovery? It is so, it is such an easy answer. Um, it has to do with some feeling of certainty that, that like I was on the correct path then. Right. Like this was something that I was supposed to do. Um, I had no strong conviction about moving from Washington down to Arizona. It was something that was done on a whim and it was really driven by my girlfriend at the time and now wife. It wasn't something I would have done on my own at all. Yeah. Not ever. Wow. Which is, which is an incredible piece of it too. It really is. Yeah, think, well, absolutely. I wouldn't have, I couldn't have done it on my own. Not in a million years, even if I knew everything about mushrooms because I wouldn't have come down here. Yeah. Wow. How, what a perfect, that is the perfect thing to come out of it too, right? It's just like uh, as clear a day a sign as could possibly exist. Yeah. From like the, yeah, the universe is so strange like that. But you, you've got to just, you've got to roll with that, those coincidences. Um, and my God, even in the Scrooge McDuck comic, he has like a shamanic, there's, a, there's a, what, this one scene where they essentially have a shamanic, a shamanic encounter. And mm -hmm. 
he has that same thing where he has this kind of validation from the universe that he's doing he's on the right path (laughs) we're gonna i'm gonna finish reading all of it and then we're gonna have to do an episode about it at some point because there's something about it is dripping in that that spirit of adventure and that Mm. that not take that taking of the invisible path and that invisible path is not something that you can really predetermine in a sense right for sure. you have to you have to prepare for it but um you're also you also better follow the coincidences as well yeah absolutely absolutely <laughs> any any final wrap-up thoughts on this this three episode adventure for our ears just another reminder to sh- you know shovel your neighbor's driveway or something, or if you have an elderly neighbor, see if you can help them out. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I like that. Joel, thank you, man. I I like this is a story that you and I have kind of like briefly touched on, but never actually done a a deep dive into. And it's something that is the like one of the most fascinating experiences I can think of. So this has been a, a real treat for me. So I, I thank you for sure. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>